Hey guys, and welcome back to the Universe in You, uh, the show where I, your host, tries to um, break down the universe to a consumable bite-sized chunk and uh, deliver it to you in an easily understandable format in 30 minutes or less. Today I'm going to be presenting on stars. They're the specks in the sky, the uh, ever-present friends. They make up the constellations that Billy went over last week. And they're really the tool by which the universe uh, forms so many elements that are essential to human life and to any life that may or may not exist throughout the cosmos. So when the Big Bang happened all those billions of years ago, the prevailing element in the star or in the universe, there were no stars just yet, was hydrogen. That's really all that was there. And honestly, scientists believe that after the Big Bang, there was really just subatomic particles, some spatterings of protons, uh, a smorgasbord of neutrons and electrons, and eventually they coalesced into the first element, hydrogen, just an electron and a proton. Now, as time went on, these clumps of hydrogen coalesced and formed the first stars. But we're not going to talk about the Big Bang. That's a good topic for a future episode and those first stars that formed then. We're going to talk about star formation as it stands today, as it stands for the last several billion years and will continue on until the eventual heat death of the universe. So stars are formed in what are called colloquially stellar nurseries, but they're really called nebulae. You may have heard that term. It's probably something you've seen uh, beautiful artists renditions of these colorful clouds through space it's nestled there in the dark uh, some bright lights shining within but kind of undefined shape these are nebulae uh, the birthplace of the stars a nebulous is composed of large amounts of hydrogen and helium gas these are the elements which make up young stars within nebulae there are giant molecular clouds made up of primarily molecular hydrogen, which serve as the actual birthplace, the actual uh, engine by which stars are formed. Star formation begins when one of these clouds undergoes gravitational collapse. So whatever momentum had them moving apart from each other and keeping them separate uh, had dissipated by gravity's forces. And all that hydrogen started to pull on each other and come closer and closer and collapse into one another, colliding and releasing gravitational potential energy. And this energy was released in the form of heat. Now, gravitational potential energy is a very simple concept here on Earth, but when you get to space, it's a little bit weirder. So, if you pick up an object from the ground, it now has gravitational potential energy. You put energy into that object, you raise it up away from the Earth, the source of all relative gravity, or relevant gravity, on Earth, and you held it up higher. Now, if you release that object, it'll fall. I can say that with some degree of certainty. That object will fall to the Earth, and it'll accelerate the whole time. Now, at the bottom of that object's fall, right before it strikes the surface, wherever you picked it up from, all of that gravitational potential energy gets converted into kinetic energy. That's a very clear energy transfer. Now, in space, when these 
massive molecular clouds are collapsing, this gravitational energy doesn't really... That's not the transfer it goes into. Yes, there's some kinetic energy. But what happens when these molecules collide? Well, that energy gets released or changed from kinetic energy into heat. That's generally where energy goes when it transmits. When energy translates from one form to another, there's always some efficiency loss, and that's almost always due to heat. Now, in the case of the molecular cloud collapse, there's so much mass, there's so much gravity potential, that this heat is pretty significant. And there's almost a heat bloom, which forces, first of all, the breakdown of this molecular hydrogen, and second of all, creates conditions conducive to what is called a nuclear fusion, which is the basis of stars. So as the heat and the pressure build from these gravitational forces involved, the collapsing cloud turns from a cloud into a protostar. Basically, it's just a compact form of this cloud, and it continues to grow by accretion, which is basically just gravity capture of gas, until all the mass from the molecular cloud is either consumed by the protostar or expelled out into the void. Because if it picked up sufficient speed and then missed the gravitational point, that clump, then it could just go off and it could have reached escape velocity. At this point, uh, this protostar can go one of two paths. It can either become a brown dwarf or a fully fledged star. Now, brown dwarfs are rather lackluster and simple to explain, so we're going to go through those first. Protostars with masses less than about a tenth of Sol's mass form what are called brown dwarfs. Now, they're very similar to stars structurally, but they never quite managed to create sustained nuclear fusion. The International Astronomical Union defines brown dwarfs as stars massive enough to fuse deuterium, or hydrogen-2, which is hydrogen with an extra neutron on there as opposed to just the proton, the nucleus. So they're stars that are massive enough to fuse deuterium at some point, but not continuously. Any brown dwarf smaller than 13 Jupiter masses are classified as sub-brown dwarfs, so they don't even get to be called brown dwarfs. And if any sort of brown dwarf orbits a star, then they're just planets. Both types of brown dwarfs die away and cool slowly into just regular super Jovians. Now, they are massive. At 13 Jupiter masses, they're nothing to snuff your nose at. But, essentially, they just become planets. Kind of overgrown gas giants. So... The way it's often explained to people is brown dwarfs are simply failed stars. They had aspirations of stardom, but they fell to the wayside. The other kind of star that can form from a protostar is basically any type of main sequence star. So for more massive protostars, anything about greater than about a tenth of Sol's mass, deuterium fusion becomes basically the status quo. Now, deuterium fusion is a proton being forced into a deuterium atom, thus creating helium, which fuels this furnace. It is this hydrogen fusion that marks a star beginning its main sequence life cycle. Now, depending on the mass of the star, any of several types of fusion could eventually become the primary driving force of the star, but typically main sequence is described by that fusion through hydrogen. Stars stabilize when the gravitational force trying to collapse the star because of the massive gravitational pull on itself and the pressure from the fusion at the core pushing out because as this 
hydrogen fusion occurs, there is energy and pressure forcing out. As those two forces reach an equilibrium, this is when main sequence occurs, when the star is mostly stable. This is known as hydrostatic equilibrium. Two pressures pushing against each other come to a standstill. Now before we go any further, it's important that we discuss how fusion works and why it's important to the universe as a whole. Now, fair warning, nuclear fusion is one of my favorite things to talk about and one of the main reasons why I got into nuclear engineering in the first place. When two atoms or an atom and some subatomic particle are forced together and they undergo fusion as opposed to fission, so the joining together of atoms or subatomic particles to create larger and larger elements, when this occurs, there's a mass deficit every single time. So, if you take two deuterium atoms, so two hydrogen atoms with an extra neutron each, and force them together, force those nuclei to join, you will end up getting a helium atom. But, here's the fun bit. If you add up the mass of each of those deuterium atoms, then you'll find that that's not quite equal to the mass of the helium atom. What actually happens is the helium atom is slightly lighter than the sum of those two deuterium atoms. This is called the mass deficit of nuclear fusion. And it is why nuclear fusion works the way it does. It's why stars continuously burn for millions of years. This mass deficit didn't just disappear. It's accounted for. In nuclear energy equations, there's not only a mass component, there's an energy component in every single one. So think back to a high school chemistry class when you're balancing equations, and you have to make sure that every bit is accounted for. No atom can be lost. Well, when you're talking about nuclear energy, nuclear fusion, nuclear fission, any sort of nuclear chemistry, there can be some mass lost, and we account for that with energy. So, how many of you have heard Einstein's famous equation e equals mc squared? right? It's written on chalkboards and cartoons. It's in every little piece of pop culture about science, just because everyone knows E equals MC squared, right? But not a lot of people really actually know what that means. They just think of it as Einstein's equation, and that's about it. So that E is the energy release. The M is the mass, and C is that classic speed of light constant. This is how we calculate how much energy is released from a nuclear fusion reaction. When we take the mass of those two deuterium atoms, we add them together, we find out some mass is missing. When it turns into a helium atom, that mass is what we put into the mc squared. So, if we convert that mass into kilograms, multiply by c squared, we get an E output in joules. Now, for one atom, this is trivial energy just pocket change completely irrelevant in the universal scale but when we talk about billions of these reactions occurring every second all constantly constantly happening you end up seeing some pretty incredible energy outcomes that's why stars run the way they do that's why they're so hot the surface of the sun is thousands of degrees celsius for a reason the core is an order of magnitude hotter and our star is pretty much a schmuck compared to most stars out there. Now, fusion is great, right? We have this awesome energy output. Yes, awesome. Power our cars, power our civilization if we could ever get it working. But 
why does this matter in, in the grand scheme of things? All right, this is just another form of energy. Great. We have many ways to generate energy. We can burn coal. We can uh, do nuclear fission, right? We have that already. Why do we need to get fusion? And why does it matter that stars do this? Well, not only does it matter that stars do this because we get all that energy, right? All the energy on Earth comes from our sun bombarding it and giving it the warmth it needs to live. We actually find that all of the heavy elements in the universe come from fusion. If it wasn't for fusion, that mass of hydrogen that just existed after the Big Bang and after the kind of earliest molecular transformations happened, if it wasn't for fusion, all we'd have was hydrogen. That's not very helpful for life. All of our heavy elements come from fusion. If you look at uranium, uranium has a half-life. It's not a stable atom. It decays. It undergoes radioactive decay and breaks down. Uranium would not exist for us to do fission, for us to get energy from that, if it wasn't for stars and their life cycles. So, stars are not only important for the warmth we get from them, but they provide us with all of these ancillary benefits. Every bit of matter that's not just hydrogen on Earth was once in a star, and the hydrogen gas probably was too. So that's the important thing to remember always when we're working with these things, when you're talking about stars. The fusion goes so far beyond just the simple release energy, get heat, heat warm planet, liquid water, life. There's so much more going on there than just that. So, back to our stars. Once they hit their main sequence, stars go through that hydrogen fusion like we talked about. Now, the beginning of the end of the main sequence occurs once the outward pressure caused by the fusion of hydrogen to counteract the force of gravity is starting to lose the fight. So if you think about that as a barrier, like two fronts, or you know what, better analogy. If you're thinking of tug of war, except instead of tugging, it's push of war. Each side's trying to push against each other. Now one side's starting to get tired, maybe one of their players fell out, maybe they uh, twisted their ankle, maybe they fell, maybe they had an urgent call to answer, whatever it is. Now they have one less person helping them, then another, then another, then another. Slowly, that side that wasn't slackening, because gravity doesn't slacken, it doesn't get tired, it doesn't run out of energy, the gravity starts to win the fight against the hydrogen's fusion. Once the hydrogen fusion is over, that pressure wins completely. Now, after this, one of two things can happen, depending on what the star's mass is like. Either the electron degeneracy pressure becomes sufficient to oppose gravity, this happens in small stars, and electron degeneracy pressure is a, basically it's kind of a part of the Pauli exclusion principle, which we talked about when we did multiverse theory, uh, but essentially it's just a dictation of the information, or the behavior of particles at a small level. Um, I suggest listening to the multiverse episode, though, to get a better explanation of that. In larger stars, the core becomes hot enough for helium fusion to begin, like a light switch turning on, and all of a sudden, gravity now has something new to fight. So, these low-mass stars, these red dwarfs, 
are stars of about 10% of the sun's mass. They have a main sequence of 6 to 12 trillion years, and they heat up and become brighter slowly over the entire time. Now towards the end of their lifetime, when their hydrogen starts to run out, they eventually evolve into a white dwarf. Now, how, why does this actually happen? So, red dwarfs have a very active energy transfer and matter transfer between their core and their surface. They're not of a uniform temperature, but they're of pretty much a uniform composition. This is aided by their small size and kind of fluctuating matter fields. Because of this, they don't have a unfused hydrogen surface as it happens in larger stars. Typically, the percentage of hydrogen throughout is pretty consistent and starting to go down, so it's a homogeneous star. When they evolve into a white dwarf, it's because basically the whole thing has now become helium. They'll never evolve into a red giant like their mid-sized and massive brethren because they are fully convective, right? That mixing up of the matter. In low-mass stars, the hydrogen process will continue until the whole star is a uniform helium. Now, red dwarfs that approach the 0.8 solar mass threshold about when it becomes a mid-sized star instead will enter something like a red giant phase, but it's relatively short-lived, and then they will quickly continue on to their white dwarf phase. Now, white dwarfs have a unique final evolution, if you want to call it that. They're... they're I would say death of a white dwarf and we'll talk about it at the end of the episode when we go over the various ways stars can end all things must end and so too must stars so moving on to our mid-sized stars these are about 80 percent solar mass to 10 times solar mass now remember when i say solar mass i mean the size of the sun a solar mass is one soul it's about 2 to the 10th kilograms. So mid-sized stars first enter a subgiant phase. It occurs when the star exhausts the hydrogen in its core, and it leaves the main sequence and begins to fuse hydrogen in a shell outside the core. So the core is mostly, as far as fusion is concerned, the core is inert. But the outer shell around the core begins its hydrogen fusion because they're not as convective and not as active with matter flows as their smaller star brethren. They still have hydrogen left once they finish their main phase. Once hydrogen fusion enters that shell around the core, the star begins to expand and slowly cool a little bit. Mid-sized stars can enter two different red giant phases. Often they enter both of them. The first is the red giant branch star. They have inert cores made of helium and hydrogen burning shells. Now, after this phase, they'll enter what's called the horizontal branch. So, they spend a significant amount of time doing this, where they obtain a helium fusing core. So, that hydrogen burning shell managed to heat up the star enough that the inert helium core actually started undergoing fusion and helping the star continue on its evolutionary cycle. After this horizontal branch 
is concluded, you get the asymptotic giant branch stars. They have inert cores of carbon and helium-burning shells. And then around the helium-burning shell is another hydrogen-burning shell. So these continue to expand and grow very slowly as time goes on as these shells expand and you have now two layers of fusion helping push against that gravitational pull. After mid-sized stars eventually reach the end of their asymptotic giant branch, they run into a problem. They're not large enough, so they don't generate enough gravitational force, and they're not hot enough to fuse carbon. Carbon is a pretty substantial element. It's not that those light and easy to fuse hydrogen atoms, not even the slightly more difficult to fuse helium atoms. It's a serious element, and making it fuse is a huge challenge. Once it hits this wall, they start to expel matter, and they create something called a planetary nebula. Now, planetary nebula is very similar in appearance, but not in content to a stellar nebula. Basically, what happens is all of the heavier elements get pushed out from the star because it just can't do anything with them. And they form a matter cloud around the star. Now, the star lost a lot of mass and it kind of collapses into a much smaller star. But what's left is all very hot and collapses so it gets a lot of gravitational potential. So it's sitting there burning hydrogen and helium or burning being fusing which leaves a small and very hot star surrounded by this planetary nebula. This nebula tends to be rich in oxygen, carbon, and some other pretty mid-range elements. Nothing so heavy as the metals, uh, but definitely some beneficial elements for future development of either planetoids or uh, maybe seeding of a later planet that could have potential for life. So now we're moving on to the more massive stars. These are stars that are about 40 times as large as the sun, and they have cores that are already hot enough to result in helium fusion. They don't have to undergo any sort of weird uh, evolution. They're doing it already. Now these stars form into supermassive red giants. They're several orders of magnitude larger than normal red giants. But they have such powerful stellar winds that these can actually strip away their outer layers of cooling gases. This gives them extremely hot surface temperatures. Unfortunately, because this is such a volatile way to survive as a star, they tend to be very short-lived and very quickly evolve into a supernova state. So, supernova. Stars can meet any of three basic ends, but... They all start with some sort of nova. The supernova is probably the best known way for stars to die. When you're a child and you stumble across your science book, or maybe you, like me, were at the library and you got all the science books you could find, the pages were filled with artist's illustrations of supernovas. Uh, once I got to see an image of the supernova that was taken the previous week at a science center, I was at when I was in Florida. And it's an extremely cool looking thing because there's such a huge energy explosion out from the star. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Once nucleosynthesis results in iron 56, or once that fusion that's synthesizing new and heavier elements reaches iron 56, fusion stops being efficient. So 
Fusion is based on the idea that there is a greater energy output because of that mass deficit we talked about earlier than energy input for it to happen. So for us trying to do artificial fusion, humans on Earth, if we can make there be more energy or substantially more energy coming out from that fusion reaction that we're capturing efficiently, then we have to put into it for the fusion to happen, we'll reach sustainable fusion and that becomes a viable power source. But even stars, which are purpose made to be the best at fusion nature can get, they still can't be more efficient than the math. And an iron 56 or an iron atom with an atomic mass of 56, fusion stops being efficient. You start losing energy every time you go on higher level. Once this happens, the natural fusion flow in stars halts and the star begins to die. Now, if the star's mass is too great for electron degeneracy pressure to fend off the gravity, as what happens in white dwarfs and red dwarfs and the dwarfs, then it will collapse into neither a neutron star or a black hole. When the star collapses, there's a massive neutrino emission, which coalesces into the incredible supernovas which astronomers can observe. This burst of energy also forces the formation of the heaviest elements in our universe. Because remember, I said that the heavy elements, such as uranium, such as uh, plutonium, those, those are formed from stars. But I also said that natural star fusion doesn't go much higher than iron 56. Well, if you look at a periodic table, there's a pretty big gap between iron 56 and uranium. Above iron 56, there's a whole lot of naturally occurring elements that still need to form and aren't forming in our stars. They get formed in supernovas when all this energy gets forced out and everything's been being bombarded with energy and radiation. And this burst results in the formation of all of these heavy elements. Now, the supernova occurs regardless of whether the star will turn to a neutron star or a black hole. That's just how it works, right? The star's gravity well will collapse, the matter will collapse in on itself and then burst out. Now, there's always something left behind. In the case of neutron stars, when the pressure of the collapsing stellar core hits everything, it forces the electrons and protons to come close and fuse, something extremely difficult. This is a process called electron capture, which is something that's relied upon in modern nuclear fission devices. Now, electron capture actually results in neutrons forming. If you look at the masses of an electron, a proton, and a neutron, the sum of the mass of an electron and proton is pretty dang close to a neutron. And this is why. Because if you want to think about it in these terms, electrons and protons create neutrons. There's a lot of other ways to do it, but that's probably the simplest one to talk about here. Now, if you remember anything about the structure of an atom, they're mostly empty space. There's a very, very small nucleus, there's a very, very relatively large distance to the electron orbiting it, and that's it. Nothing can exist in that space, because as far as any other atom is concerned, it's a solid piece, right? That's just, that's it. So when you take away all this empty space, you result in a much, much, much smaller shape. Neutron stars are essentially entirely made of these neutrons, and they collapse into a dense ball, kind of like a giant atomic nucleus. 
and they end up being only about 10 kilometers. They're extremely dense, and they'd have to be to take all this matter that's left over after the supernova, because supernova takes a lot of matter, but stars have a lot of mass, and so there's still a ton left behind. It packs all of this into a tight, tight space that's about 10 kilometers, so like the size of a pretty big city. Now, interestingly enough, scientists actually observe these because some of them rotate at a very high speed, and some of those have their axis aligned with Earth, resulting in a very powerful electromagnetic radiation pulse at various kinds of wavelengths. So there's been X-rays, there have been gamma rays, all sorts can result from a neutron star. Now, you may have heard of these. They're called pulsars. So they're spinning, and they're hitting us regularly with this blast of electromagnetic radiation. Its period can be anywhere from 600 milliseconds to several seconds. So it's a pretty interesting thing for scientists to be able to observe, and it's got to be a heartening confirmation of some theories. Now, another way that stars can meet their end is in the form of black holes. So, essentially, it's when the star's core left over after the supernova collapses into an incredibly small volume, known as a singularity. So it's a very high mass over a very small volume, resulting in a basically infinite density. This forms a massive gravity well on the space-time blanket, and if you want more information about this, you can go ahead and listen to the Universe New Episode 2, t- titled Giant Space Ninjas, where I go pretty in-depth into the various theories on black holes and why they exist. But in the interest of time, I'm just not going to repeat that again today. The final kind of stellar remnant that can form are white dwarfs and then eventually black dwarfs. So some stars either started with such little mass or they strip away so much mass that they result in a white dwarf. They burn hot and they burn long and they slowly increase their temperature over their lifetime until they completely convert their mass into the heaviest element that they can successfully fuse. So, in most cases, it's just helium. In some cases, it's carbon. But eventually, it hits the point where it is not big enough to fuse any more of it. But since they have a high convection, so they are very active and they're mixing around their matter, every bit of it gets turned into whatever this highest form is. Now, once a white dwarf completely runs out of fuel, it cools into clumps of cold matter of whatever this highest element was called black dwarfs. Now, unfortunately, these are, of course, very theoretical because the universe actually isn't old enough for any of them to exist. The minimum lifetime of white dwarfs and red dwarfs is on the order of trillions of years. So a universe that's only about, for our estimates, 15 billion years old it's going to be a while before we have any confirmation of these theories. Now, keep in mind, most of the stuff is theory, but unlike wormholes, unlike black holes, we've been able to observe a lot of stars, and we've been able to get a much better idea of how they form and how they die. So, a lot of this can be taken as uh, pretty good truth, but as always, better science might change the facts in the future. So, this concludes the information portion of our episode. Now, just for some kind of uh, bookkeeping, our next episode will be a Billy episode. He'll be talking about the space race, the exciting time in the 1960s where great capitalist America was contending with the Soviet Russia to see who could develop the best space program, and we were all using Nazi scientists. So, he'll be doing an episode on that, and that'll be coming out in a week on January 21st. 
So if you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at signifyingnothingnetwork at gmail.com. You can go to our Facebook page. It's facebook.com forward slash signifyingnothingnetwork. Uh, as always, I have to do the sci-fi sidebar plug for my other podcast that I do with my sister, Cece. Uh, we talk about sci-fi books and media and various fun bits, and we talk about them. It's a longer episode. It's about an hour, hour and a half. Both of the last episodes were over an hour and a half. So lots of good content there. Uh, be warned, it is explicit. So you, uh, when, I won't judge you, but I would not play it around kids. Actually, uh, this week we had two episodes because last Saturday, the 12th, was our one-year anniversary of our shows. Now, this one doesn't really get an anniversary because it didn't go straight for a whole year. But Sci-Fi Sidebar, we kept it going for a whole year. And so we had a bonus episode where we did The Name of the Wind and then released this morning or the morning of the 14th, depending on when you're listening to this, we released another episode on Interstellar. So uh, those are two great episodes. And our next episode will be coming out the 28th, and that will be Golden Sun by Pierce Brown. So look for that if you're in any way interested in science fiction. And uh, I think it's a pretty good show, and it's a lot of fun for us to put on, and hopefully it's fun for you guys to listen to. Okay, so that about wraps us up today. Uh, thank you so much for listening. As always, if you like the show and you... I want to kind of help us out a little bit. Uh, we'd really appreciate you liking, commenting, subscribing on whatever your favorite podcast medium is, whether it's iTunes, whether it's Stitcher, whatever it happens to be. Uh, we'd love it if you could share us with your friends and help us get the word out about our shows because we enjoy doing them. And um, it seems like they're kind of doing pretty well. People seem to at least enjoy them a little bit. So thank you for your continued support. And um, without further ado, this has been The Universe and You by the Signifying Nothing Network, a tale told by idiots. Have a good week, guys.